So I've noticed in the past, I'm gonna say five or six years, that we're talking a little differently, especially people younger than me. And what I've noticed is this, when someone's talking about an important idea or an important decision or an important kind of moral standpoint, what is said very often right now is this, it's, I feel. Not I believe or not this is truth, not a concrete statement of fact, but it's, I feel this way. It used to be, this is right and this is wrong, this is good and this is bad. Now it's, well, I kind of feel. I feel this is what I'm supposed to do. I feel you shouldn't do that. So what's happened? Well, we become a society of individual choice now. You do what's right for you. That there are not absolutes and there's not concrete right and wrong. It's all choices and feelings. That's what we become. It used to be for centuries, the pursuit of humans was truth. We wanted truth, right? That goes, as Christians, no doubt, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But even outside of truth, if you look at other like Aristotle or the Greeks or the Romans, they always were pursuing truth. Now it's feelings. Now the highest goal is no longer, hey, let's pursue truth. Here's the highest goal now. This is it right here, right? Coexist. Let's all just get along. And I'm buying the bumper sticker and I'm putting it on my Subaru because I feel like it, all right? <laughs> That's where we're going. That we are supposed to tolerate, and tolerate means we accept all kind of ways, all religions, all gods. There's no exclusivity anymore. You can't have it. The only thing our culture will not tolerate is exclusivity. You can't say that. So as believers, do we have a problem with that? Yeah. And perhaps you've run into this conversation. I have. Someone finds out I'm a pastor or someone finds out you're a believer or whatever it is. And they're like, oh, great. And you're like, what's wrong? Well, you believers think you're right about everything, right about religion. And we say, yeah, we do actually. <laughs> uh-huh, I do believe I'm right. So there's this clash now between uh, the way that we're supposed to look at truth and the way that our culture now views people that look at truth. But if you just stand back for a moment, you have to realize religions can't all be right because they fundamentally disagree with each other. Islam commands, kill the infidel. Christianity says, love your enemy. Are those different? Yeah, those are different, right? Christianity believes that Jesus is the only begotten son of the father, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. Islam, around the Dome of the Rock, the second most holy site in all Islam, has written around the Dome of the Rock, God is not begotten, nor does he beget. One of those is right, and one of those is wrong. So Jesus says, we're to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. Hinduism says, you are God. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Buddhism says, you are your neighbor. One's right and one's wrong. 
There's a difference between loving your enemy and killing your enemy, and it matters. So if you are out and you meet a group of people that are your enemy, which ethic would you prefer them to have? Would you prefer them to have the ethic of Matthew 5, that says, love your enemy as yourself, or the ethic that says, eat your enemy? Because it will matter if they invite you over for dinner. It will really matter. So here's where we're at in the gospel of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about everything. Jesus now begins to draw some lines in the sand, and they're exclusive. And this is where I start getting into, okay, what is Christianity about? So let's jump in, Sermon on the Mount, Gospel of the Kingdom, chapter seven, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the second time Jesus has said that. He said it back in chapter five, verse 17. And it's really bookends to Jesus's Torah, his teaching on how we're to live life. And he's gone through all these things, anger and lust and forgiveness and you name it, giving and praying and fasting. All that has been included in his, here's how you're to live life. Here's what the kingdom looks like. That's the bookends. So it's telling us Jesus is now switching gears. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Brilliant. So Jesus begins with verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This idea has transformed the world. Sociologists, people that study society and nations, they say that there are three big ways societies work, people work. Three kind of meta philosophies that over, yeah, there's minors in there, but these are the big three. Number one is this, reciprocity. Do to others like they did to you. I'm gonna treat you just like you treated me. This is the dominant way humans interact with each other. And it works. I'll give you some examples. So let's say that you take your wife out for a meal. Great meal, you have a, you know, enjoy it. Really good waiter, waitress, man, it's awesome. At, at the end, they bring out the bill, they bring the little tray. And what do they throw on that tray? A couple of candies. Now, why did he or she include the candies? Is it because you were the best customers they ever had? So sweet, so kind, so awesome. I just have to give you some candy? Nope. Here's what they found, reciprocity. If they give you something free, you feel indebted to them, and reciprocity means you want to repay them. So guess what? If they put a little two cent candy on that tray, their tips go up by 23%. They figured it out to the percentage. That's reciprocity, it's in us, right? It's not them being nice, it's the mafia. It's extortion, really. <laughs> you go to a timeshare presentation. 
And they say, listen, if you come, we will give you a dinner or give you a vacation, right? If you listen to our 90 minute spiel and you sign the dotted line or don't sign the dotted line, we don't care, right? Just come listen to us. But because they're giving you something free, guess what? You feel indebted. So you end up signing the dotted line and you end up bankrupting your family for the rest of your life. <laughs> Reciprocity, it's powerful. Matt, that sounds 100% manipulative. It is. It's why we get free coffee out here. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> we were doing free coffee before I learned about this, but we're still doing it. <laughs> Here's the problem with reciprocity. I told the positive sides, you know, if somebody does something nice, something kind, you want to repay them. The negative is more powerful because the truth with humans is this, we forget very quickly the good, nice things people do to us, but man, the bad things that they do to us, they're chiseled in stone in our heart. That's the problem with it, right? You ever wake up in the middle of the night, just wake up out of a dead sleep, just remembering that guy that gave you the free parking spot? You're like, I must go repay him. He was so kind to me. Anyone? No, because it doesn't happen. But how about the guy that cut you off in traffic and almost caused an accident? Man, his license plate, his face, his car, it's photographically etched into your brain and you will remember it next time you see him because that's what happens. We are really, really good at repaying the bad, but not so good at repaying the good. The person that cut you off, the gossip, the bad business deal, the slander, the knife they put in your back, man, you remember that and you are waiting for an opportunity to repay. So we forget the good for the most part, but man, we remember the bad. That's why reciprocity ends up causing real problems in societies. That's number one. Number two, big way to live. That's human nature right there, by the way. So into that comes Google, which said this, their whole philosophy when they started, does anyone remember it? Do no harm. In 2014, I think, they actually took that away, which makes me wonder like, well, <laughs> what are you now gonna do? Harm, I guess, so be careful with Google, right? But they didn't invent that. That's a Buddhist mindset. It's called ahimsa. Ahimsa is do no harm, do no evil. Do not live your life in such a way that causes pain or harm to any living creature, humans down to ants. Do no harm, right? Now that sounds pretty good. But here's the limit to it. It's passive, it's isolating. So if you ever watched the show, um, it's on ABC, it's called, What Would You Do? It's been going for a long time, I think it's still going. And it, it does this, it, it takes very, very crazy circumstances, has these actors play it out, and then regular people like you and me that don't know it's a show, see it, and then they see, what's your response to it? So a mom with a little infant, a uh, little baby, is just stealing, stuffing it into the cart with the baby or into the carriage. And people are watching like, hmm. Or a guy out on a date with a really nice, at a really nice restaurant and his date goes to the bathroom and he slips a date rape drug into her drink. What do you do, right? Someone goes to a wedding and you see him stealing the presents and taking them out the back door. What do you do? That's the whole show. Here's what they found. The majority of people do nothing. Do no harm, I, not my problem, man. That's not my problem, somebody else's problem. The problem with do no harm is you do no harm. You end up doing nothing. 
And the best example of this was years ago in New York City, Kitty Genovese. You guys remember that? If you're older, you remember that where this woman is attacked three different times by the same guy over a space of 38 minutes. 38 people hear it, know it's happening, and all 38 people do nothing. And finally, the third attack, 35 minutes later, the dude kills Kitty Genovese. Because do no harm. Right? Not my problem. It's great that you're not killing people and not hating people and not damaging people. That's wonderful, but you're also not doing anything good. And they've actually looked at countries that are dominated with that kind of understanding. And what you find is they're very, very passive, very isolated. They don't get involved. Is that the believer? Are believers supposed to be this passive, kind of do no harm, isolate? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think sometimes that happens to us, right? We get like, well, it's not my problem. I'm out of here, right? I'm moving, I'm leaving, I'm, I'm, I'm ditching it. We can do that. But I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. I was reading recently in Matthew, couple chapters later, Matthew 9, 37. This is what Jesus says. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Why are they so few? They've moved away figuratively or literally. And so Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers. And we're not supposed to be just passively like, oh, that's too bad. We're supposed to be praying and being those workers that go out and see the harvest come in, active, right? So those are the first two. Jesus comes, he brings this radical new way. It's called the golden rule because an emperor actually had it engraved in gold in his room. And the golden rule is, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus now is summarizing what he has been talking about in the entire Sermon on the Mount. Not reciprocity, not do no harm. It is something completely different. And Jesus says, it's such a big way of living. It's a summation of the law and the prophets. He's referring to the 39 books of the Old Testament. That we read all those do's and don'ts and all that stuff in the Old Testament, Jesus says, this one rule right here sums the, all of them up. Now, why is it different? Because it's the positive. It's not do no harm, it's be actively doing good. Get out there. It's when things happen, I stop for a moment and say, if I had done that, how would I wanna be treated? If I switch chairs with this other person, maybe I'm mad at, maybe I'd made a mistake. How would I wanna be treated? Because the truth is I've probably done the same thing. When I get mad at a driver now, I go, I've done that to other people. I've driven exactly like that. It's applying the golden rule to everything that we do. That's what Jesus is saying. This is it. Isn't it the worst when you're judging somebody and you're mad at them and you're just down on them and then all of a sudden you get reminded by someone that you did the same thing to someone else? That's the worst moment in your life. Like, oh, I'm that bonehead. We should be doing it all the time. I've done that. It's stopping life and praying and thinking carefully and humbly and honestly, how would I wanna be treated? Because I've probably done that to somebody. You do that before you write the email before you make the phone call, before you write the letter, 
before you go to the meeting, you have all that in your head. How would I want to be treated? And you pray that God would fill you with the power of his spirit to live differently. It's brilliant. And if you do that, life is golden. And then it seems like Jesus right here switches gears. And then he goes into verse 13, right? You have this golden rule, then all of a sudden, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Is Jesus just kind of like randomly throwing everything in here, switching gears? No way. This is so brilliant right here. Now we miss it because cities don't have gates anymore, right? So you get this whole gate analogy. We're like, what in the world? What's he talking about? Well, Charity and I had this grand trip in Israel. We were there for about three weeks and we spent a full week just in Jerusalem. And we actually did laps around the old city. And we did it three different times. And so we went to all these gates and we'd go there and this professor would talk about this gate and what it did. And we'd go to the next gate, super fun. And what you learn is this, every gate in Jerusalem had a destination and a purpose. So you come to the Damascus gate, guess what it is? If you're trying to get to Damascus from Israel, you would just go out the Damascus gate and there's not like signs, you know, 2,000 years ago. You'd go out that gate, you just follow that road, and you got to your destination, which would be Damascus. And there was a sheep gate. The sheep gate led out to the livestock area where you'd go to the marketplace and you could buy and sell and do all that kind of stuff. Had a purpose, had a destination. And there was a dung gate. Guess where that one was? Guess where the dung gate went? Baker Park. I'm kidding. <laughs> kind of. Right? So you just knew it. You knew if I go out this gate, there's a destination, there's a purpose to this direction. Right? Jesus says it's narrow. It's narrow. So if you were to leave right now and you said, I want to go to Portland, how would you get to Portland? Interstate 5, right? Why? Because it's the easy, broad way and everyone goes that way. No one is going to use US Forestry Road 1028. Even though it gets to Portland, you're just not going to use it. Why? Because it's hard and it's brutal and no one's on it except for some elk and maybe a guy with a gun. And I don't want to go that way, right? This is the analogy Jesus is making right here. That the narrow gate, the narrow gate, the way that he's talking about has a purpose and has a destination. And Jesus's evaluation of the narrow gate is what? Verse 14, it's hard. And those who find it are few. What Jesus is doing now is he is now done teaching. Now he's applying. And he's saying to believers, listen to me, believer. If you choose to come my way, if you choose to obey what I'm telling you in this message, if you're choosing to do that, get ready. The kingdom way is not the broad way. The kingdom way is not the easy way. The kingdom way is not the popular way. The kingdom way is actually against your very nature. It's hard, but I'd add this, it's beautiful. And Jesus says the destination is life, right? So let's talk about the hardness of it. Verse 14, 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The kingdom way is hard and few go that way. If you're gonna go the kingdom route, then guess what? You're gonna walk away from friends. You're gonna walk away from the crowd. You're gonna be unpopular. You're gonna be hated. People call you a bigot, a hater, a fundamentalist. They're gonna mock you and ridicule you. You believe in God? Come on. I bet you also believe that earth is flat, right? What, you believe in creationism? Come on, haven't you read science? Science is buried creationism. You believe in two genders? You hater. This is what Jesus is saying. There's a hard way. The kingdom is hard. That when you decide you are gonna affirm Jesus is the way, singular, Jesus is the way. Not many ways, Jesus is the way the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father but by him. When you do that, are you gonna be popular? When you say Jesus is exclusively the way to the Father, that's unpopular. I have these conversations with people all the time. I just can't believe in Christianity. Why not? How could God send good people to hell? My neighbor is this, my, whatever it is, right? Whatever they want to fill in the blank. My, and he is a good guy. He's kind, generous, pays his taxes. His dog doesn't even bark. How could God send him to hell? He will find his way to God. You know what I say to him? I say, great. So your religion is good people find their way to God. What about the bad people? What about the kid that was raised by drug-addicted parents, saw chaos his whole life, couldn't make it to school because there's never any clean clothes for him, couldn't wake up on time because his parents were passed out. What about him? What about the bad people, right? Your religion is bigoted because only good people make it in. I want to know what happens with the bad people because Jesus accepts the bad people like you and me. Jesus hung out with all the wrong people, the fundamentalists, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the drunks, the thieves, right? He says a thief on death row. What about the bad people? See, here's the thing at times, I think we gotta push back on people and actually know what the gospel is. The gospel is so beautifully, brilliantly good but we have so much of this kind of noise now in culture that's just cranked it to 10, yelling and screaming at us that we don't even know what to say. We gotta back up for a second and think, wait, wait a second. Yes, Jesus is exclusive, but he's as inclusive as anyone. He says all can come. There's no, it's a narrow gate, no doubt, because it's Jesus alone, but his invitation is to every single person, not just good people. He invites the bad people. See, it's beautifully hard. You know the problem with pluralism? Coexist. You know the problem with it? Here's the problem. You can see it in our society. So we have, you can say past 50 years, past 25 years, whatever it is, we have thrown off Christianity as the dominant way of society. It's got way worse than the last kind of 15 years. So we are now pluralistic. And with that decision, here's what's happened. In the void of that, there's come all these, they just call them identity groups 
different identity groups. They kind of, they, they form these little tribes. Everyone has this little tribe. I'm this tribe, I'm that tribe. There's thousands of them now. So let me ask this. Since we've thrown off Christianity, exclusive, no doubt, one gate, this is the way in, and now it's anything goes, is our nation more divided or united today? Divided, right? Because that's what pluralism always does. It divides. When you look at what Christianity has done over 2,000 years, yes, it's, ex it's exclusive, but it's also unbelievably inclusive. All may come. Anyone's invited. Everyone can come in. So you have throughout history, Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, slave, master. We have documents from the second century of a church where a slave was an elder and his master came as a congregant. Where would that happen in any other civilization? You have this inversion of power. Nowhere. Because of the exclusive, inclusive nature of Jesus Christ. Read Acts chapter 11. That's the cradle of the church today. Up through Acts chapter 10, Christianity was just Jewish. Acts 10, Peter has this vision, a sheet is descended. It's all these things that Jews weren't supposed to eat. And he is told, rise, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, I can't do that. And he's told, go and preach the gospel to a Gentile named Cornelius. And all of a sudden, the gospel goes out to the world. And it lands in this city called Antioch, chapter 11 of Acts. And in Antioch, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman empire. It's a massive, important city. And, in, and because of its location and opportunity, people came from everywhere, Anglo-Saxons from the West, Germans, barbarians from the North, Asians from the East, and Africans from the South. And they all congregated in Antioch. It was pluralistic, but it caused problems. They literally built walls in Antioch to separate this, this group from this group from this group because they were fighting and angry at each other. All of a sudden, Christianity comes there. And every Sunday, something happened in that city I'd never seen before. Literally, people from each of the quarters were crawling over walls to come together and meet. And the city's like, what in the world? Who are these people? We can't call them Greeks because there's barbarians there. We can't call them barbarians because there's Africans there. We can't call them Africans because there's Asians there. What do we call them? And there in chapter 11 of Acts, it's the first time Believers were called Christians because the exclusivity of Jesus, including anyone, anyone can go through the gate, created a new kind of culture that didn't have a category for it. That's what we're supposed to preach. It's amazing to me. And I think we gotta remember this because I don't think it's gonna get easier to be a Christian. And when we forget that, when it gets hard, we're like, what's going on? When it's unpopular, we're gonna be like, what's going on? Here's the thing, I believe in Jesus, not because it made my life easier, it made it harder. I believe in Jesus, not because it's popular and cool and the cool people are into it, they're not. I believe in Jesus, not because it's broad and opened up opportunities for me and made my life broadly appealing. I believe in Jesus because it's true and he's the king. That's why I believe, because he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Well, that's hard, but it's true, but it's beautiful. Here's why Christianity is so beautiful. You know what's easy? To be angry. 
That's easy. You know what's easy? To be offended. That's easy. You know what's easy? To be unforgiving. That's easy. You know what's easy? To be unreconciled with a bunch of people in your past. That's easy. To ruminate at night or in the car, every spare moment when you're driving or when you're on the riding mower, to just sit there and rehash that conversation and how much you hate that guy and what you're gonna say to him and how you're gonna teach him a lesson until you grind that stuff deep, that poison deep into your heart. That's easy. That's human nature. That's what we all do. That's the easy Broadway. And Jesus says, that leads to destruction. Hebrews 12, verse 15 puts it like this. See to it. See to it. That's my job. See to it. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. That's the easy road right there. You just let bitterness take root in your heart. And here's what happens. Many get defiled. Everyone around feels it. Anyone here know a bitter believer? They make Attila the Hun seem like Mother Teresa. I can introduce you to a few. Many take that road because it's natural. It's normal. It's the common road that we take. Teeth set on edge. No margins in your life because they've just been narrowed down by your own just prison you've made of agony and pain. And we all know this. Pain that is not transformed will be transmitted usually to the people we love the most. It just starts to, uh, to your spouse and to your kids and to friends. That's what happens. I've done marriage counseling with men. And there's no problem with the wife. The problem was his dad, a business deal, a brother, a friend. That's the problem actually. But bitterness never stays contained. It defiles many, just spreads out. And that's the broad, easy way. That's human nature. Human nature does that. What Jesus is calling us to here is to get out of the prisons of our misery and our own pain and have that pain be transformed instead of transmitted. That's what he's asking us to do. That's the way Jesus says that leads to life. It's the whole sermon. Here's how you deal with unforgiveness. Here's how you deal with reconciliation, right? We've gone through it all. Are you gonna choose the broad, easy way or the narrow way? The hard way is forgiveness. That's narrow and hard. Reconciliation is hard and narrow. Forgiveness is hard and narrow, but it's life and it's beautiful. And I can't imagine a better time than the holidays to actually walk this out because you're gonna be with people that maybe have hurt you. It's amazing to me that people that hurt us the most are the ones closest to us. I think because we expect more from them instead of realizing they're humans. We always have this higher bar, really? They're still human. See to it that you don't forget the grace of God. See to it, remember, all have been invited. See to it that you don't forget. Now is the time to reconcile. Now is the time to take the narrow gate. Now is the time to say, I'm done living this way. I want life. That's destroying me. But Matt, I can't. I've tried and I can't do it. Okay, let me finish with one story. 
It's a little history lesson from October 2nd, 2006. Perhaps you remember this. Happened out in an Amish community in West Nickel Mines, little schoolhouse. They're taken over on that morning by a postal worker named Charles Roberts, who went in there, kicked out the teacher and all the boys and kept the girls. So you can imagine what was happening. And the police showed up and Charles Roberts says, if you don't back off, I'm gonna start shooting. And he did, killed five girls, brutal. And then he got killed. The Amish community, here's how they responded. Within hours of that happening, they had gone to Charles Roberts' wife and his kids and brought them a meal and said, listen, we don't hold this against you. We don't, want any, we, we don't hold you responsible. We love you. How can we walk with you through this time? 10 days later, and they could have had every reason in the world to be bitter, at the murderer, at the police, at, you know, you name it. The widow, they could have been bitter at everything. 10 days later at 5.45, a.m., a gigantic excavator showed up at the West Nickel Mine schoolhouse. And they took that schoolhouse and they crushed it and put every bit of it into dump trucks and they took it away. And they made a beautiful green grass pasture out of it. No memory. Because the Amish knew something. If we leave that building there, it will be a monument to bitterness. Every time we go by, we'll remember. So we're not gonna do it. But here's the thing about the Amish. They don't use excavators. They realize this is such a big, hard situation. We need outside help. So they hired outside help with a giant excavator to take care of their bitterness. I think all of us need outside help. You can't live this way. This is narrow and hard and difficult. The only way you can live this way is if you let Jesus be the door. If you let him be the power. That's the only way you can ever do this. If not, we'll go back to our nature. Unforgiving, angry, bitter, miserable people. You gotta say, okay, Jesus, this situation is too much for me. This situation is killing me. It's destroying me. I need you to come in and excavate this stuff out and set me free so I can live life in an abundance.